Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of discussions with entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. Lawyerist supports attorneys building client-centered and future-oriented small law firms through community, content, and coaching, both online and through the Lawyerist Lab and Accelerator. And now, here are the co-authors of The Small Firm Roadmap and your podcast hosts. Hi, I'm Laura Briggs. And I'm Stephanie Everett. And this is episode 291 of the Lawyers Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Emily Nagaski about how to break the stress and burnout cycle. Today's podcast is brought to you by Nackley.io, Back Office Betty's, Case Text, and Text Expander. We wouldn't be able to do this show without their support. Stay tuned. We'll tell you a little more about them later on. Stephanie, there's been so much changing in the world in 2020, and it's felt like attorneys have had to be pivoting and adapting ever since. And, you know, there's not data too much yet that's saying, oh, we need to turn things around totally financially. But I thought it might be helpful to talk about some tips you might have for small law firms if we are facing a possible recession or even an economic downturn that stretches into Q4 of this year. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, I think everyone's nervous because you might have received some PPP money or something else that's kind of helped you or your clients for that matter with the stimulus checks get through to now. And I think we're all sort of just holding our breath, like what's the next shoe to drop? Cash flow is going to be the name of the game for your business. Obviously, you want to have as much cash as possible just to weather whatever storms are coming. So I've got three tips today for how to make sure you've got some cash set aside if you don't haven't already thought about this. So the first is to get your invoices out on time. And hear me out, guys. I know who you are. I talk to you. <laughs> and I know some of you sit on your invoices for way too long. And just stop. Don't do it. <laughs> you know, each and every month, you need to get your invoices out. <laughs> I know some attorneys who even do it in two batches. So half go out at the 15th and half go out on the first. Whatever it is, but we can't sit on invoices. You're never going to get paid unless you get those invoices out. So get them out. That makes a lot of sense, especially because other people might be doing the same thing with their money too, right? Like your clients are thinking about how do they keep their own cash flow moving. And so if you wait to send out an invoice and then they're going, well, I, I want to wait and see if there's going to be another stimulus check or what do I need to rearrange in my personal finances to pay this invoice? You want to get that out sooner rather than later so that you don't have all of these things kind of stacking up together. Yeah. So then the second tip is to check your AR. So accounts receivable obviously is who owes you money and who's passed their invoice date. And you want to be managing this like a hawk. If you're not already, you should be routinely, I think at least once a week, checking your AR report. It should be a simple report you can run in your accounting system and see who owes you money and be diligent with those people to have a plan. It doesn't mean that you have to become a crazy collections person, but you need to be in conversation with people who owe you money and they need to understand that they owe you money and that you expect to receive it. Because sometimes, unfortunately, the, um, what's the saying about the noisy 
squeaky wheel gets oil. Yeah. <laughs> Something like that. <laughs> Something. If you make noise, you people pay attention to you. <laughs> so you've got to be vocal and let them know, hey, I expect payment for this. And if you can't pay it right now, that's okay. But let's have a plan. Let's have a payment plan and let's be in conversation so that everybody knows what's going on. And in fact, in our insider library on our website, we actually have a script that you can follow for those conversations because we know how painful it is and we know how much you hate doing it. So we just came up with a quick script for you and that's free. If you're an insider, which is also free to join, check out the insider library. So step one is make sure you're sending out your invoices and you're monitoring your cash flow. Step two is watch that accounts receivable, check it at least weekly. What's the third thing we should be doing to stay on track with finances this year? Yeah, I think the third thing is if you haven't done this yet, take a look at how you're getting paid and look for ways to shorten up that payment time or cycle. So if you're still billing by the hour, you know, see me and let's talk about why that doesn't make sense anymore. But if you are, (laughs) maybe your invoices currently say that you expect payment within 30 days. Well, maybe there's an opportunity to shorten that up to 15 days. Maybe you can collect more of a retainer on the front end so that you'll be able to transfer that money from your trust account to your operating account when the invoices go out. Maybe there's a way to think about flat fee payments or breaking up, even if you are billing flat fee, maybe right now you've got it set up where you get half in the middle of the work and half upon completion, or maybe it's half up front and half on completion. Maybe there's a way to break that up into three payments between, you know, based on the work you're doing. So again, just look at the work you're doing, look at how you bill and how can we shorten the time so that you get yourself paid faster. There has never been a better time to implement those tips. Now we've got a brief sponsored conversation with Kim Mayberry from Nackley.io and then my conversation with Emily. Hi, I'm Kim Mayberry, and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Nackley. And Nackley is a document automation solution that helps firms like yours be more efficient. Awesome. We're happy to have you here on the podcast. Can you tell me a little bit about your journey? How did you decide to start Nackley? We have been doing document automation consulting for 20 years now. And a couple of years ago, we started looking at the solutions that were out there. The ones that we were using weren't quite working for our clients and felt like, you know what? Lawyers need better ways to create documents and, and connect with all their systems. And started the journey and last year released the product and have continued to grow from there and are really excited about what we've been able to accomplish over the last couple of years to make it easier for solo firms to be able to get in, automate their documents, and give their clients a bigger firm experience. Where do you think the biggest loss of time is around document automation? So someone who either is using a software that isn't the right solution or they're not doing document automation at all, what do you think is the biggest challenge there? The biggest challenge is... One, if you're not doing document automation, you're spending a lot more time drafting your documents than you should be. Those that move from, you know, the standard word copy replace, you know, templates or using the last client's document is when they go to document automation, they really are saving 80 to 90% of the time that they were taking to go through and draft documents for a specific client. Now, Getting those templates automated in the first place can be one of the most daunting tasks. 
mm-hmm. to getting to that efficiency. And with NACLI, we've done some things that are making it easier to get from no automation to automation and speeding up the process of doing that. Yeah, I can imagine that's a big challenge when you don't have anything automated and kind of going, well, great, now I'm going to have to spend more time to set things up, but it's good to know there's ways to speed that process along. What is unique about your software when compared with some of the other document automation tools out there? So a couple of things that we've done, we have logic in the documents. So you can go through and do conditional paragraphs, whatever you need there. We have a client intake process. So you can actually have a link that you send to your clients to fill out information online and have that information flow into the system. And we have the ability to connect multiple systems together. So if you have the Clio's or the the Practice Panthers, we can connect that data together so that you really are trying to get to single entry Mm -hmm. and how you go about doing that. And really the fundamental piece that we put in place to start this is when you automate a document, it automatically creates a intake interview for you that can hide and show questions based on how you automated the document, which really is a time saver. Mm-hmm. In other systems out there that we've used over the years, you know, really you're automating the document and then you're automating the interview, the intake process. And with NACLI, we're able to make it so that you only have to do one of those and it automatically flows in. So it really becomes a time saver that way in the automation. That makes sense. Now, I know one of the special offers that you have for lawyerist listeners is some money off a a sort of jumpstart package, which we'll talk about in a second. Can you explain a little bit about what you mean when you say something is a jumpstart project call? How does that help an attorney? Right. So Usually when you go into a document automation project, there may be some moments of feeling a little bit overwhelmed because really you're going through the process of creating a system that you've never created before. And what the jumpstart does is depending on which package you choose is that you're going to have access to someone who has been doing automation for a long time. They're experts in this so that they can guide you through the process of automating your documents. And with that, we have a certain amount of calls that we're going to be on there with you. We're going to go through and set up basically the variable structure so that based on our years of experience in document automation, we can go through and set up the structure that's going Mm -hmm. to work for you. Mm -hmm. And then also just the training that goes along with just making sure that you're successful in your project. So that's really what a jumpstart is, is to basically jumpstart you into automating your documents. Wonderful. Lawyerist listeners can get $100 off a Jumpstart package by visiting nackley.io slash lawyerist, and that's K-N-A-C-K-L-Y dot I-O slash lawyerist. I am Emily Nagoski. I'm primarily a sex educator, but really my purpose in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy in their bodies. And you have, with your sister, written an incredible book on burnout, which is one of the hottest topics. Our audience is primarily small firm and solo attorneys, so the legal profession is definitely not immune to burnout, perhaps more likely to head there than other professions as well. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit about what you mean when you say the term burnout? 
Yeah, it has a sort of like three-part technical definition, but Amelia and I, that's my sister, we found that the definition people can really understand is that burnout is when you feel overwhelmed and exhausted by everything you have to do and are still worried that you're not doing enough. Mm. That's a really great definition. And I think one challenge that comes up often, I know I've definitely felt this when I've come up against burnout before, there are red flags and signs that clue us into the fact that we're heading towards burnout, but often we don't realize it until we are knee deep in it. So I know in your book, you mentioned that some of the signs might look different for different people. Can you give us some clues about some early warning signs that you might be headed towards burnout or already in it? Oh, sure. Well, so if you hear that definition and you're like, Oh, yeah. Then you're burnt out already. <laughs> Welcome. <laughs> um, but there are sort of three categories of signs. There's physical symptoms in your body, which will include all different manner of pain. And if you're the person who gets everything that comes down the pike, every single cold that anybody gets, if you have digestive distress on the regular. For my sister, one of the motivations for writing the book was that my sister was so sick, she was admitted to the hospital twice with digestive distress. She was in so much pain. She literally thought she was going to die. And it was undiagnosable. The doctors kept her there for four days. We're like, well, I guess it's just stress. <laughs> just stress. Right. <laughs> How can stress put you in the hospital? Turns out it's absolutely possible. So physical signs are one of the things. If you're just always, there's something unwell, your headaches. And if you're a person who gets migraines, they're just constant. Those are signs that your physical system is overwhelmed and cannot process all the stress that has been thrown at it. So that's one level. Another is cognitive. If your thoughts are spinning, if you're unable to concentrate, or if you find yourself ruminating, just like stuck, trapped in thoughts of like some problem you have to solve or some difficult thing that exists and you cannot extract your brain out of those thoughts to think about all the other things that you have to do, that's also a sign of burnout. The sort of like cognitive blinkers that there's only one thing you can see. And then there's the emotional signs of burnout. So this will show up in emotional lability is the technical term. And it means that your emotions are all over the shop, that you're reactive emotionally, small things cause you to react in really big ways. And that's mostly because it's not that the small thing is causing you to react emotionally in a big way. It's that your emotional cup is right at the brim and that one last little thing falls in to your overflowing cup and it just sploosh, everything splashes everywhere. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Unfortunately, far too familiar, right? Yeah. And I know a big part of what you and your sister are advocating for in the book is this idea of recognizing these sort of triggers, these sort of clues that you're headed towards or already in burnout and finding a way to close the loop and break out of it. So it seems like cycles are a pretty important component of this, of recognizing when you're in that cycle of the persistent thoughts. If you find yourself caught in that loop, is there a way to break out of it once you're already into it? A hundred percent there absolutely is. And it's necessary that there is. So one of the sort of fundamental ideas of the book is that this process of dealing with the stress itself is separate from the process of dealing with all of the causes of your stress, your stressors. And this is actually, I find it easy to explain to people like lawyers, because you see, there's a legal process that people go through in order to resolve conflicts, right? And then there's sort of the emotional process, like a divorce. There's the legal process of getting divorced from someone. And then there's the emotional process of 
coping with that separation. There's the emotional process of any sort of violent assault or robbery or other crime, or even like suing your contractor who failed to do whatever. And then there's the emotional process of dealing with the thing that happened to you, right? And we think... (laughs) That when you like successfully win your suit or that when your perpetrator goes to prison, that you're suddenly going to feel better. And our bodies, we live in these monkey suits and the monkey doesn't have any idea what winning your lawsuit means. So you get to the end of that long, difficult, intellectually demanding process and you're just you're expecting to feel like at the end of a Christopher Columbus movie, like the end of the first two Harry Potter movies where somebody starts a slow cap and there ends up being like cheering and applause and yay, we did it, hurrah. And that is not how it works in biology. That is not how it works in real life. We talked to an activist in Ireland who read the book and she's a journalist and she had worked really hard on abortion rights in Ireland, the process to make abortion illegal. And she said that at the end of that, Everybody really thought they were going to feel amazing. They had all worked for years, worked so hard to make this legal change. And they thought when they won, everything was going to be better. They were going to feel amazing. And no, they just were so exhausted and overwhelmed. And they felt kind of hollow instead of feeling the joy they were expecting. And that's because the process of dealing with the stress itself is separate from the process of dealing with the cause of the stress. And we spend basically all of chapter one talking about, I think it's a dozen different ways for processing the stress itself. But I want to emphasize that this is really good news because it means you can deal with your stress and return to a place of balance and peace in your body, even while the stressor still exists. You don't have to wait for justice. You don't have to wait to fix everything before you can begin to feel better. And I would argue You have to begin to feel better in your body so that you are well enough to continue fighting for the things that it matters for you to fight. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes complete sense, right? Because that's probably the first pushback that a lot of people give when thinking about this idea of burnout. Like, great, yeah, I'm definitely stressed out, but it's my job that's stressing me out and I still have to go there. Or it's this person that I have to deal with in my life that, you know, maybe it's a co-parent after a divorce and it's not going to necessarily go away. So I can cope with it for today, but what do I do for tomorrow? Exactly. I love all of the ideas that you do mention in the book. And one of the things that really jumped out to me is we're kind of taught maybe not to show all of the emotions and the processing that we go through, especially when you're dealing <laughs> yeah. with stressors. And one way to do that is to engage in watching the performing arts because it's sort of a socially acceptable way of working yes. through and feeling emotions. I was like, this is genius. Like, this is so good. And yeah. it seems so simple, but not many people think of it that way. So I thought that was really powerful. Yeah. So this is, you have Amelia to thank for this one because <laughs> she's a professional musician. She's a choral conductor. And so connection with the arts is absolutely one of the ways she processes her emotions. So the deal with stress and all emotions and sort of a lot of what it means to be an animal on earth, to be a mammal in particular, is to have these biological cycles that we're supposed to oscillate through and emotions are one of them. So feelings like digestion have a beginning, a middle and an end. And with digestion, there's a beginning 
there's a middle. And if you don't get all the way to the end, some not so great things can happen, right? Right. And the same thing is true for emotions, for stress in particular, and all the ways it shows up in our life. And we tend to, especially if you get gender socialized feminine, you are taught to smile and be pretty and happy and calm and generous and attentive to the needs of others at all times and just be so nice and accommodating and let me help you with that. And I'm pretty sure I can offer an insight. And thank you for putting forward that idea that I suggested 15 (laughs) minutes ago. That's really great. You're like holding on to like the anger that's roiling inside you. But on the outside, you look so calm. You look so nice and so accommodating. And so you have dealt with the stressor by being culturally appropriate, by making other people feel comfortable. And it's so wonderful that our bodies have the capacity to put a pause button on our emotions and just hold that for us. And it will continue holding it for us for as long as we ask it to. But it would really like us to get to the end of that process in the same way that our digestive system needs to get to the end of the process. So uh, one of the ways we can access it is through creative self-expression in the performing arts, watching a movie. If you've got like a movie or a book you read where like every single time you know where to reach for the tissues and go, oh, I love this part so much. (laughs) It's healthy. It is so good for you to have access to like completing those emotions along with the characters because the function of a really good story is to carry us along and grant us access to the full cycle so that it gets to that happy ending. Yeah. Yeah. And that's just one of the things. Like, it's so good for us. I love it. And I love that you brought this up because you can get lulled into this false sense of security where you're going, okay, I'm working on a big case or I have a massive deadline in front of me. It's going to be stressful. And at first you kind of go, well, my body seems to be handling it. I'm doing okay. Like I'm definitely stressed, but I'm still getting up and functioning every day. And it gives you this false sense of like, everything's fine. And right. That's what happens when you crash and you finish the case or you finish the project. And suddenly you've had the worst flu of your life and you literally, (laughs) it's like your body held all that stress, but it has to like go somewhere or become something at the end of that. So I think that's really important. Yeah. The biology of that stress is that it suppresses your immune system (laughs) because um, that's a metabolic waste to like work on your immune system because the stress response is there to help you with life threats, like being chased by a lion. And you don't need your immune system to escape from that threat. You don't need your reproductive system to escape from a stress like that. You don't need your digestive system. All those systems are slowed down or shut down for the duration of the activation of the stress response. Our system is designed to be activated by acute stressors that last a few minutes, Mm. maybe a few hours. But if we stay stressed for days or weeks or months or years at a time, that's going to have a long-term impact. I use this very simple example of the cardiovascular system, right? We all know that when the stress response get activated, that fight, flight, freeze response, one of the first thing that happens is an increase in our heart rate and our respiration rate and our blood pressure. So imagine that blood pressure stays increased, not for the minutes that it's designed to stay activated, but for weeks, months, right? You have all this pressure, boom, boom, this really intense blood pressure against your blood vessels that are not designed to, it's designed for this like gentle trickling stream, but this fire hose of blood pressure from the increased stress response gradually creates wear and tear on those blood vessels more than your immune system can keep up with, obviously, because your immune system is suppressed. 
And that leads to tears in the cardiovascular system, which leads to plaques, which leads to heart disease. So over the long term, when we say that like stress is not good for your health, this is like the biological mechanism by which it damages our organs. Yeah. This is literal. Yeah. And I think so much of the research coming out about burnout, like we've known it's been a thing for decades, but now it's oh, starting yeah. to finally be recognized like, oh, there is this connection between the physiological and the psychological and your body. And yes, it's going to absorb stress. And I want to go back to this other idea that you brought up, particularly around what society expects you to do. In the book, you talk about this as human giver syndrome. What are some clues that you are (laughs) stuck in human giver syndrome, as I imagine many of our listeners are? Yeah. So in particular, for people who are gender socialized feminine, on the day you're born, people look at your body and they go, it's a girl. And then they start imposing this like massive cultural script, all these expectations about like who you're going to fall in love with, what kind of work you're going to want to do, what kind of family you're going to want to have. Like, all these ideas about like who you're going to be and they start teaching you the script not maliciously not because they've chosen it but because it's what they were taught it's just automatic and the script for a human giver we take this language from a book by a moral philosopher named kate mann the book is called down girl the logic of misogyny it's very dark but great if you have the emotional wherewithal to read a dark great book about misogyny i highly recommend it but she posits a world where there's two types of humans there are human beings who have a moral obligation to be their full humanity right it's in the name human beings and they must be as competitive acquisitive and entitled as they have to be in order to maximize their full humanity human beings and then there are the human givers who have a moral obligation to give their full humanity, their time, their attention, their patience, their love, their bodies, their hopes and dreams, sometimes their lives sacrificed on the altar of the needs of other people. And that's where we get the script that if you have human giver syndrome, if you've been cast in the role of the giver in the context where some people feel entitled to take everything that a giver gives, then You feel like you have to be at all times pretty, happy, calm, generous, and attentive to the needs of others. And if you fall short, remember, this is your moral obligation. So if you fall short, you deserve to be punished. And if there's no one around to punish us, then we will just go ahead and beat the shit out of ourselves. Am I allowed to swear? Sorry about that. No, I think this is such an important topic because you can deal with the immediate stress, but you can't disconnect that from the fact of maybe at my core, I feel like I need to continue serving in that role of giver. And so you can continually find yourself in burnout over and over again. If maybe you thought that it was situational, oh, this is my job that's stressing me out. Oh, it's this negative relationship I have with a toxic family member. But then if you have human giver syndrome and are stuck in that, you might find that coming up again and again. So that feels like a perfect mic drop moment. We're going to take a quick break here from our sponsors. And when we come back, we'll be talking a little bit about handling burnout and triggers now. Support for today's episode comes from Back Office Betty's, the only virtual receptionist service exclusively dedicated to small law firms that offers a plan with unlimited calls. Their highly specialized service boasts customized call handling, relentlessly friendly team members, and unmatched quality. The Betty's are ready to help you grow your firm even when you're out of the office. Visit backofficebetties.com slash lawyerist to try them out for one week free. 
Use the promo code PODCAST to receive $150 off your first month. Looking for a true alternative to LexisNexis or Westlaw? You could save thousands this year if you switched to Case Text. Over 6,000 law firms from solos to 40% of the AM Law 100 use Case Text to help them find better results in less time and for less money. For $65 per month, you'll get access to 50 state and federal case law, statutes, and more with zero out-of-plan fees. Try the Smarter Legal Research platform. Lawyerist podcast listeners can go to casetext.com slash lawyerist to try Case Text for free for two weeks. Text Expander makes life easier by automating your most repetitive tasks so you can focus on what matters most. This month, Text Expander is teaming up with Smith.ai virtual receptionists and Global Mac IT to present a free one-hour webinar to help you automate your life and your work. Our three outsourcing and automation experts will share tips and strategies to improve your business communications so you can capture more leads and serve clients better. The webinar will also cover communication pitfalls, the role of responsiveness in accelerating business growth, and productivity and communication apps. Join us for the free live webinar on Tuesday, August 25th at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern. For more information and to register, visit smle.us slash talk text grow. Okay, we're back. I can't imagine the topic of burnout being more relevant than it is at the moment that we're recording this episode, right? Because we're living in an always-on, always-connected culture and society already, but we've also got the impact of a worldwide pandemic, uh, racial justice issues, social unrest. And so I imagine there's probably lots of new triggers and new ways that people are experiencing stress and stressors. Can you talk a little bit about that? Oh, gosh, yes. (laughs) Particularly from a gendered point of view, all the research that's coming out and the early journalism about the way gender's playing out in families that are sort of quarantined together or in isolation together, all the scripts are playing out in their most extreme form where who in a heterosexual relationship with kids is responsible for caring for the kids, even if both of the adults in the house have jobs, like it's still automatically assumed that it's going to go to the woman in the family. You might be familiar with the second shift research. Oh, yes. So the first shift obviously is like your day job that earns the money. Your second shift is the childcare and householding that keeps the home together. And then the third shift The third shift is this phrase Amelia and I found in the research to describe what happens at night when we're all supposed to be resting. (laughs) We are not all equally resting. Whose job is it in a heterosexual family with kids to get up and deal with other people's problems over the course of the night? Mm -hmm. It always falls to like the script is because you're the human giver. Your job is to sacrifice everything you have. And that includes your own rest. Mm -hmm which is a biological drive as fundamental as hunger, thermoregulation, and even breathing. Like you can literally die of sleep deprivation. It takes a long time and your body will resist it, but it gradually decreases your mental health and then your physical health and then your ability to sustain life. Mm -hmm. And it is our job to sacrifice that. And if somebody needs to quit a job in order to do childcare because of inequality in wages, the partner that's likely to be making less money is the woman partner. And so that person leaves their job in order to be able to take care of the kids. Unless there was that one story in the news about the heterosexual couple where, yeah, the woman made more money, but the dad just felt completely overwhelmed and helpless at the childcare. So she quit 
her better paying job because he like couldn't hack it. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's incredible. I mean, we've really been talking about this from the perspective of even our own team trying to recognize the way that you know, how can you be as accommodating as possible to team members who might be internalizing things that are happening in the world in a different way that yeah. you as an individual are? And even thinking about like, okay, well, if schools don't open for the fall and half of our team has children and has to think about potentially homeschooling, how do we have that conversation around flexibility or making accommodations? To what extent do we need to kind of address that and proactively guard against burnout? I mean, that's been a real issue with a lot of parents who have children at home. They might be trying to still do their work remotely while they're home, while their spouse or partner is also at home. And it's kind of this like chaotic environment that feeds back into that stress. Um, So I know one of the things you talk about in the book is incorporating exercise on a regular basis. Do you think that we're in generally stressful times now where you have to be more on guard about building in that rest and time and exercise for yourself than ever? Or is it just kind of like, that's always important no matter what? It is always important no matter what. And I think it's very easy, particularly from a human giver point of view, to put your own self-care in the back seat because you have to take care of everybody. This is why self-care, the whole like, self-care is so important. Good for you taking care of yourself. Self-care is really important. But like <laughs> deep down the script is like self-care is very selfish. And it's so nice for you that you could get eight hours of sleep last night and go for a 45 minute walk. But I was up until six o'clock in the morning frosting Becky's cupcakes. And then I cooked, you know, a two course dinner complete with a kale salad, but good for you that you had time to take care of yourself. Right. It is so easy to fall into the trap of not prioritizing self-care is the way we put it because you're prioritizing everybody else's needs because it is true that you will actually be punished culturally, probably maybe even by the people you're trying to take care of and for sure by your own self-critical monster that lives inside you if you dare to disengage from all the responsibilities you have and just do something that helps restore your body. To go back to the idea of uh, the stress cycle and this oscillation that we're supposed to go through, because we cannot complete the stress response through the behaviors that deal with the stressors, we have to deal directly with the stress itself. And physical activity is for a lot of people, the single most efficient strategy. And some people listening will be like, That is so true. I know that every time I put on my bike shoes or put on my running shoes or walk out that door or walk into the gym, I know that at the end of that run or that bike ride or that elliptical class or whatever, that at the end of it, I'm going to feel so much better. That's me. I'm a natural exerciser. And for other people, like my identical twin sister, (laughs) they'll just be like, Yeah, exercise is good for me. I know, but I have never had that experience of like feeling great (laughs) after workout. I just feel tired after a workout. So thanks a lot for the same freaking advice that everybody's been giving me that I should exercise. Awesome. (laughs) Good insight, Emily. So while it is the case that physical activity is real good for you and you should get some, there are lots of other things that if exercise is not the thing that does it for you, only spend, you know, 20 minutes a day on physical activity and then add something else that like actively to you feels like completing the stress response cycle or when you get to the end of it, you'll be like, oh yes, that is what I needed. If that is watching the movie that does it for you, 
great. If it is some form of creative self-expression, like writing for me is the thing that like gets me, I can like sob on my keyboard for half an hour, get to the end of it and be like, yeah, that was it. Uh, It might be meditation. It might be play with your kids or your partner or with animals that when you get to the end of it, you'll be like, I know that I used my body and my mind and I shifted out of that stressed out state into a place of calm and relaxation. Our bodies want to get to the end of the cycle. For a lot of people, physical activity is the most efficient way to do that. Even for the people for whom physical activity doesn't feel that great, it's it's really important. Exercise is good for you. It is the green vegetables <laughs> of movement. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. And I think too, building in that time to take the time for yourself to do the self-care, to do the 20 minutes of exercise or whatever it means for you, that can also open up the realization where you're asking your brain to slow down and you kind of realize, Hey, I've put myself or I'm in a situation right now that feels maybe a little bit out of my control, but it's a constant stressor, right? So Mm -hmm. you talk in the book a little bit about how to decide when to quit and kind of scanning the resource abundance of the environment. And I think that's really relevant right now because so many people might have realized like, hey, now I'm working from home and like my commute was actually really stressing me out or working from home, like this was toxic in the office and now it's maybe even more toxic being at home. Uh So how do you kind of make that decision about when is it time to say this thing is a consistent stressor in my life and I need to back away from it kind of permanently? Yeah, there's this really wonderful body of research on uh, animals. This is the sort of metaphorical way to think about the decision of when to quit. So imagine you're a squirrel sort of foraging in a patch for some berries and things, trying to like get ready for the winter. At a certain point, it's more rewarding to go in search of a different patch than it is to continue looking in a patch where you've already sort of foraged half or more of what that patch has to give you. And there are a lot of different factors that go into sort of the mental equation of when it's time to leave this patch and try a new one, or when like you should continue staying in this patch and foraging what's left. So for if you're a squirrel and you hear an owl hooting off in the distance, that's a cue to you that there's some kind of predator out there and there might be more risk associated with leaving this patch and looking elsewhere than there is with staying in this patch and continuing foraging, even though there's less here because you've already taken most of what there is to take. Does that make sense as a metaphor so far? Yes, absolutely. So in the workplace, you're left with this decision of like, do I stay? Have I foraged all the nuts that there are to forage here? Mm -hmm. Or is the world outside in a different patch so potentially threatening that I need to stay and tolerate the diminishing returns of this particular patch where I'm attempting to forage. And if you're in therapy, your therapist might ask you to do like a cost benefit analysis, like make a little grid on a piece of paper that says like benefits of staying where I am, costs of staying where I am, benefits of changing or quitting, costs of changing or quitting. And you make a list of all those things. And I really recommend this. It's a great activity. It's evidence-based. And that squirrel in a patch doesn't make a pro-con list. The squirrel in the patch (laughs) listens to its body and goes, I'm done here. I've taken all I can and it is time for me. Oh, that's my phone ringing. Hang on a second. Sorry about that. Um, Hang on one second. That is probably the cheese. 
if you want to, we're having home delivery of uh, locally sourced dairy because we live in Western Massachusetts. Oh my goodness. That's fabulous. And that's, that's what we do here is like somebody comes along in a bicycle with cheese that was made from a cow that lives 10 miles from our house. If that isn't self-care, I don't know what is. Right. And it means we don't have to go to the grocery store and put ourselves and other people at risk. Yes, there it is. My box has arrived with my locally sourced burrata. I love it. So the squirrel listens to its body and trusts what its body is telling it. And I know this is difficult for a lot of people, especially like rational, well-trained minds like lawyers. When I say, trust your body, listen to your gut. And I mean that pretty literally, that your internal organs know when you're done. Like I've given all I have to give. And the problem is that we're not bad at hearing that voice, but we are really good at ignoring it mm, yeah. because it feels like there's a moral imperative. Like if I stop, then I'm quitting. I'm a quitter. I have given up. I have failed. That to stop and make a different choice is inherently to have failed to do a thing, which is like human giver syndrome comes right back in. Like, was this a thing that's truly important to me to continue fighting in this toxic situation? Or is it just human giver syndrome telling me that I'm supposed to sacrifice everything I have? And that means even my health and my mental health in order to keep fighting this fight. And I know that it can be hard to let go of a decision that human giver syndrome has said, no, you have to keep, you have to stay. And you make that pro-con list of like benefits of staying the same, benefits of changing, costs of staying the same, costs of changing. You do that analysis and the list is going to tell you, but you have to believe and respect all the things on that list. And you have to believe and respect when your body is like, regardless of whether social lessons tell us we have to stay, like you're done. This is, you've got everything. And once that has happened, even if you don't quit, whatever it is, whether it's a relationship or a job or anything else, your relationship with that thing has to change. It's going to change. If you're analyzing a job and you're like, I cannot stay at this job, but I have to stay at this job, you stay differently at that job, right? Yeah, that's extremely powerful and it's a great action step. And truly in this interview, we have only scratched the surface of all of the great things inside the book. So we will link your book in the show notes. People definitely need to go check it out and read it in its entirety because we've maybe only covered 10% of all the goodness. It's literally chapter one and two. <laughs> right, we have only scratched the surface here. So I strongly encourage everybody to go and check that out, read a copy of the book, and don't just read it, but implement the tips and recommendations that are in there. Well, Emily, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak with you. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Me too. The Lawyers Podcast is produced by Laura Briggs and edited by Christopher Ng. Are you ready to implement the ideas we discuss here into your practice? Wondering what to do next? Well, here are your first two steps. If you haven't read the Small Firm Roadmap yet, grab the first chapter for free right now at lawyers.com book. Next, if you're looking for help beyond the book, then let's chat about whether our coaching communities are right for you. Head to lawyers.com community to schedule a 15-minute call with our community manager. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. 